Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It's a wild world and there's a lot to be allergic to in it. There are the common ones like pollen, peanuts, certain medications. But what if you had a bad reaction to water? I can't actually drink water. It causes a burning sensation in my throat. Or what if you had a severe toxic reaction to sunlight? If I had to go outside, I walk from one patch of shadow to the next. To have that exposure to sunlight minimized as much as possible. Or what if you were allergic to exercise? Seriously. If I decide to have peanuts, I have to remember not to exercise, not just that day, but the next day if I've had it in the evening. I'm Kion Wolf. All that and one that's not exactly a, a medical condition. I have a specific large reaction to the person behind home plate calling balls and strikes in a baseball game. An allergy to bad umpires. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Having allergies sucks. Here you are on planet Earth, just trying to exist amidst all the chaos and beauty and injustice and joy of all things. And whether it's peanuts or dust mites, medicine or mold, allergies can make everything so much more complicated and dangerous. You can't be spontaneous. You can't be careless. It sucks. So what if you had a toxic reaction to the sun? I don't mean you burn easily like me. I'm a delicate flower with an impressive year-round devotion to SPF 100. But I mean, what if being exposed to the sun for just a few minutes can make you really sick for days or weeks? Or what if you are allergic to exercise? Seriously, if you do more than chill on the couch, your throat closes up. Now, while many allergies are 100% no laughing matter, period, I want to let you know that everybody in this episode does have a condition they're able to, in some ways, laugh at. So in that spirit, at the very end of the show, I have for you an intimate, heartfelt conversation with a woman who's allergic to bad umpiring. But let's get this started with someone who has an allergy to the most abundant molecule on the surface of the planet. The substance that makes up most of our bodies. Yes, Rachel Warwick of Derbyshire, England, is allergic to water. Really? Any kind of water? Rainwater, pool water, saliva, a lot of liquid makeups, um, lotions, balms, eyeliner, mascara, uh, skin moisturizers emollient creams, eye drops, blood, sweat, rain, uh, what else? Mm. <laughs> Bottled water, distilled water, purified water, hot water, cold water, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I asked Rachel to tell me about her earliest memory with this condition called aquagenic uticaria. It was like coming on slowly but the major notice was like when I was 12 years old 
And that's when I started getting more of a rash when I came out of the bath. And this is, you said it's it affects you from the belly button up and very rarely below the waistline or hands. So talk to me about what it looks like when it manifests. It kind of looks like, you know, when you get stung by nettles and you get the welts and the redness, it looks like that, basically. It's not very nice to look at. <laughs> and when you cry, right? It, you're... Yes, yes, tears as well. Yeah, I forgot that one on the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read that when you cry that it like it makes it, your face look like you've had Botox. Yeah, my face swells up, my lips kind of swell and my eyes like uh. oh. <laughs> not, not the best to look at though now when you get these reactions does it hurt itch it's like the skin swells up feels tight it's itchy and it burns um does the duration of time that you're exposed to the liquid make a difference like a quick shower versus a long shower not really no the best way of describing it is the less time I'm in it, the less time I have to recover, but it's still going to do it no matter whether I'm in it for a short time or a long time. And you said temperature doesn't matter, right? It's No, irrelevant. I've tried cold showers. I've tried really hot showers. I've tried in between. It's, it's all the same. Will you talk about how it got diagnosed? Because I'm sure at some point you were like, this has to be something I can get treated. Talk about that diagnosis. So... I went to the doctors originally and I saw one doctor and they were like, oh, it's probably nothing. But then when I went to see another doctor when I was around 12, um, I can't remember exactly what year it was. Um, he was like, hmm, there's something interesting about this. But nothing really happened. And then I think it must have been around 2004. I just got so fed up of it. And I went to the doctor and this was a different doctor. And he basically says, it's this. And he actually knew about it. And I was really surprised because normally a lot of the people I know, they get diagnosed by going to see a dermatologist. But this GP already knew. <laughs> so that was very helpful. Which is amazing because isn't it incredibly rare? There's only about 100 cases recorded in medical literature. It is incredibly rare, yes. Although I am part of a group on Facebook which has over a 1,000 members. Now, what have you learned from the doctor or from your research about like why this happens? Does it and, and like is there an average onset age? Does it come and go? Is there a cure? All the all the burning, sorry, questions about this. Burning questions. I like that. Uh, honestly speaking, it varies from person to person. Each person is very different when they first started with it. What helps them and how severe it is. Um, for example, I have quite a mild case compared to some of the other people I know who end up in A&E quite frequently because their throat's closed up on them because they've got caught in the rain, things like that. Some people have started with it at 40 years old. Some have started from birth. It varies. Is there any cure, any treatment, anything other than just try to avoid existing? I'm not like that. Some people have found different drugs have helped them and other people haven't. For example, I've tried really strong antihistamines, but because of the fact that it's not a true histamine reaction, it 
it's a bit awkward. Whereas other people have found that it's helped them. There are other medications that have been recommended, but I can't get them here where I live. Uh, whereas over in, I know the US, they can get it quite you know, readily available. Whereas here I'd have to pay around 200 pounds a month to get it imported. That's funny. Usually it's the opposite. Usually the United States has a way of completely <laughs> uh, robbing you blind for something you need to exist or exist uh, sanely. So that's, that's something. Go figure. <laughs> Do people not believe you? Because it just, it seems like beyond the scope of our imagination that this condition would exist on the planet Earth for a human being. And I, I just, I, I'd love to know if people tend to be like, you're lying, because that can't be. A lot of people think that. And I have to forward, uh, sometimes I can't be bothered to argue because I get it enough. And I know a lot of sufferers get it enough. But I just have to forward them to medical journals and documented things to show it is a real thing. It does exist. You know, we do exist. There are people out there who have this problem. And I mean, the, the main argument is, well, you're made up of water and you have to drink something. So that's rubbish. And that's the main argument that people have. But it's it's a case of we still don't know exactly what causes it. So your guess is as good as ours. <laughs> but when you're drink like when you're drinking it, it, it's not touching your skin on the outside, right? Like you can drink water, right? I can't actually drink water. It causes a burning sensation in my throat and it feels, yeah. <laughs> I have to find other things to drink. But it, but everything you drink is made out of liquid. What do you do? I know. It's. I've found that the more acidic something is, the easier it is to go down uh, and the less it hurts my throat. The only way of describing it is, you know, when you've got, a cold or an infection and your lymph nodes swell and you get that burning sensation that's what it feels when I drink water just plain old water so are you always dehydrated it it is actually I don't know whether this is too much information but um yeah I do get dehydrated a lot to the point where the doctors have to check my urine because it gets acidic basically and um I was in A&E a couple of years ago because I had blood in my urine and proteins because of the fact that I, I get dehydrated from from not being able to drink as much as I should be able to because it just hurts my throat. And if you have, you know, like pasta with pasta sauce, there's water in the pasta sauce. Yeah, you've got to be, I, I reduce a lot of stuff. <laughs> so it's not as liquidy. What do you normally eat and drink throughout a regular day to, to that wouldn't make you feel like total crap? It varies. I'm not the kind of person who lets things limit them. I'm a bit stubborn. So I will eat the things that make me uncomfortable. I will do the things that make me uncomfortable. <laughs> it's, like, it's one of those things where it's the reaction itself is not going to kill me. So I will, <laughs> I will drink things. I, water is one thing I will not. <laughs> but... I will generally tend to eat whatever I feel like, whenever I feel like, because I, I'm a foodie. I love food too much. <laughs> wow. Um, what do you wish people knew? Or what are ways you wish people would change the way re they react to it? I don't know. Like, what do you wish people knew about this? 
I think the main thing is that just that it exists. When you say I've got an allergy to water, the first thing they do is, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, they laugh. Just more resources out there to show that it, it's a thing. I mean, everybody says, oh, I've got hay fever and they're really sympathetic to that. And it's about time that allergies were more commonly known. I mean, I know a few people who have got an allergy to cold temperatures, for example. They get welts on their skin if they go out in the cold. A relative of mine actually has an allergy to the sun where it causes a, a reaction on their skin. And a lot of people don't know they exist. So, But they're, they're actually more inclined to believe the cold and the sun allergy than they are to the water allergy. <laughs> it's something that most people who don't have a huge medical knowledge they probably don't know and the more people know the more people can sympathize with it and people aren't treated weirdly <laughs> or like liars yeah yeah um i wonder what this has done to you like emotionally, because there's a certain way you have to protect yourself and there's a certain way you have to plan things. Like how does this dictate how you live your life, your, your plans, your, your joy, your ideas, everything? How does it control you? The winter months can be depressing and isolated, I'm going to be honest. I mean, it rains a lot here, <laughs> as you can imagine. The stereotypes are true, but now during, especially like the winter or autumn kind of months, they are wet, very wet, especially where I live. I'm in a region which is quite wet. So I have to be extremely careful about that. Um, while obviously, like I said, it, it won't kill me, it is still very uncomfortable and it feels as if you've run several miles when it happens. So if I get caught in the rain, I have to come back home and I have to have a downtime of about two hours or more just to recover from the reaction because it, it really, really makes you tired. So, yeah, it, during the winter, I stay indoors a lot. And if I have to go out, waterproofs. <laughs> because saliva is something you're allergic to. You're married, yeah? Yes. Does that mean your husband cannot kiss you without a reaction? Now, that's something that I'm quite annoyed about being published, that I we don't kiss. We do. I don't care. <laughs> I'll, I'll get itchy for that. <laughs> Worth it. Exactly. <laughs> a few newspapers in the past have published that I can't kiss and all this. And I didn't agree on that. <laughs> no. I like that. That's a more accurate summary, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely worth the itch. I will, I will come out in a rash, but I don't care. Is this? Oh, is this genetic at all? Does anyone else in your family have it? That's the thing. They've not, they've not found. I mean, because they don't really know what causes it exactly. Still, anyway, but there's no evidence to show that it's genetic. However, my brother also used to suffer from a very similar set of symptoms. He used to come out of the shower with the rash and the itch as well but his has disappeared <laughs> lucky <laughs> so who knows i'd like to know if you could turn this condition off for a day how would you spend it 
swimming pool. <laughs> it would be a pool party. <laughs> water guns. Yes. Water balloons. Yeah, water balloons. Sprinklers. <laughs> Everything. There'd be slip and slides everywhere. Uh, oh. Cocktails. Yeah, everything. <laughs> oh, I hope that for you. It, do, it is this something that ever stops with people? Do people ever like when they're older? Does it go away that you know of? Some people have found that it's vanished, like my brother. Some people find that it gets worse. I found that as I got older, it got worse. And so when I first started showing up with the rash when I was twelve, it was nothing really major. It was just a bit itchy, nothing out of the ordinary and then as I got older and older I don't know whether it has anything to do with hormones or what but it just got worse and at the moment it's pretty stable (laughs) touching all the wood (laughs) (laughs) there are some things which I won't do and then some things that I'm just I don't care (laughs) well Rachel Warwick thank you so much for talking with me no problem nice to meet you (laughs) When we get back. If I decide to have peanuts, I have to remember not to exercise, not just that day, but the next day if I've had it in the evening. Meet a woman who, when she eats peanuts, must remain still more or less for 24 hours. Plus. I was um, mostly inside during my childhood. Of course, we tried to manage. My parents tried to design our life around my condition. How life forms you when you have a severe toxic reaction to the sun. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. You can't even imagine the torturous state I've been existing in. I am allergic to water. It itches my throat and it blisters my skin. Still, I drink because I have to. I bathe because I have to. Boy, it's a pain. But I don't cry, cause it hurts to cry And I don't go outside in the rain This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about allergies. But not the kind you hear about all the time. The kinds that make you wonder about how the lives of people who have these allergies or sensitivities is really different from those who don't have them. Later, you'll hear how a woman fed up with a lack of research on her severe toxic reaction to sunlight, which in medical terms is not an allergy, by the way, but we'll get into that later, took matters into her own hands and became part of a team that came up with a treatment. But right now, imagine you're a kid and you're just finishing up your paper route. And I came home and I said to my mom, I feel like a bee has stung me in my throat. And she said to me, did you swallow a bee, of course? (laughs) I'm like, no, nothing went in my mouth. That's just what it feels like. So little Anne Reardon of Sydney, Australia, ends up in the hospital with a swollen neck, face, and tongue. They do this special test on her arm where they scratch her with 20 common irritants. But it turns out she also has dermatographism, where you swell as a response to any abrasion. So the 20 little red bumps that definitely made themselves known didn't really get them anywhere. Finally, Anne's sister, who is studying to become a nurse, happens to come across this news article about exercise-induced anaphylaxis that was food-dependent. 
So Anne starts keeping track of everything she eats, and eventually she cracks the code. Anytime she eats peanuts, she must avoid exercise. But how does she define exercise? Well, at the time when I was younger, obviously I was paper rounds and I was running and all sorts of stuff, but sometimes it would happen when I just went for a walk. So it doesn't have to be intense exercise some people have had it just gardening like it's just anything that is more than sitting basically (laughs) existing right yeah within 24 hours of eating that food that is your trigger which in my case is peanuts so you have to remember if I decide to have peanuts I have to remember not to exercise not just that day but the next day if I've had it in the evening so that's why I tend just to avoid it because it's easier than trying to remember don't do anything (laughs) for 24 hours. How do people react when you tell them about this allergy? Uh, I honestly hardly ever tell anyone about the allergy. Most people don't know. As I said, I didn't get properly diagnosed and speak to an immunologist about it for many years. So there was uh, one case when I was at a gym at an exercise class with a friend, fortunately, and I said to her, we need to go in the middle of the class. And she's like, why, what's going wrong? I said, I just, we have to go. I'll tell you in the car. And I could feel that same thing. Felt like a bee had stung me in the throat. And so I had Finergan, which is a strong antihistamine at home. I had a high dose of that in tablet form that I'd been given at the hospital. Uh, So I drove home, which the immunologist said, you just, you can't do this sort of thing. Allergic reactions can happen faster and faster and all of that sort of thing. So in hindsight, that was all very dangerous. But I told her on the way home that, yeah, I'm having an allergic reaction. I just realised I had a Snickers and I'd totally forgotten about it. So that's when I'd usually tell someone is when they needed to know. But other than that, if I'm not eating peanuts, I can avoid it. Now's a really good time to say that for the maybe three or four people listening to us right now who don't know who you are. You are a wildly popular baker and food creator. You have a website and a YouTube channel, How to Cook That, with almost 5 million subscribers. And your latest cookbook is How to Cook That Crazy Sweet Creations. So when you're coming up with said crazy sweet creations, do you find yourself not exactly chomping at the bit to include peanuts in your recipes? Definitely. And partly for me and partly for my son, who's allergic to peanuts. So we have a very high level of caution around anything with peanuts. So usually if I make a dessert or a cake or anything that has peanuts in, as soon as it's finished filming, it will go to someone else's house for eating and we won't eat it. And then I hand wash everything um, and rinse it before it goes in the dishwasher so that there's no chance of any traces of peanuts just circulating around that dishwasher water and going on all the dishes or anything like that. I studied as a dietitian at university, so I remember them telling us a story of a kid who went to a friend's house and the mum made her child a peanut butter sandwich, wiped the knife clean with a wet cloth, made the friend's son a jam sandwich, and he died before they could get the EpiPen to him. So we're very cautious to make sure there's no traces of peanuts left anywhere so I don't mind cooking with it and using it but then I'm just probably over cautious but for a good reason to make sure there's no traces left around and for those of us who who can safely eat peanuts uh, there's a there's a post on your website of the 10 best peanut butter recipes and your own recipe of a giant snickers ice cream bar so the the love for peanuts and the respect for peanuts is there 
but uh, with some some guardrails. That's right. But then there's plenty of people who love peanuts and love Snickers and love all those things. So there's no reason to exclude them based on the fact that I don't eat them. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's the same with anything that I don't like that other people request. I'll still make it. I just will avoid it. This one just has a bit more deadly consequences than the others do. Well, Anne Reardon, thank you so much for talking with me. No worries. My pleasure. Technically, this next story isn't an allergy. Instead of a reaction in the immune system, it's a metabolic condition. Yasmin Barman Axison of Zurich, Switzerland, has erythropoietic protoporphyria, an extreme toxic reaction to sunlight. She told me that, like plants, people with EPP absorb the energy of the visible light range, but instead of photosynthesis, which she thinks would be very cool, Exposure to visible light leads to phototoxic burn reactions. She gets up to second-degree burns of the blood vessels. She took me back to when she first experienced the pain. So that was in the age of two and a half years when the first symptoms started. So I personally do not recall that time, but my parents told that I woke up in the morning and with a swollen face and swollen hands. They were really shocked and brought me to the hospital but they couldn't figure out anything what was wrong, just the swellings. That is when everything started. So from that summer on, I had uh, pain and, and swellings and red patches on the skin whenever I had exposure to sunlight. So how did they figure it out? Uh, I did. I did figure it out by internet research by Dr. Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really luck because um, just two weeks ago another patient wrote a wikipedia article and that was in the end of my university time during my master's thesis when i by chance found that article and it was a new link with a new name erythropoietic protoporphyria i definitely never had heard that before so i got curious and the wikipedia article basically described my life this is how I got diagnosed, more or less. So will you talk more about what exactly it feels like and looks like and how long it takes to develop? Like, how long can you stay outside? Is it direct sun? Can you be in the shade? What, tell, tell me more about the specifics and how it manifests. So in the beginning, this, this means um, two to ten minutes after you're exposed to sunlight, there's some itching feeling and some tension in the skin. And that very rapidly develops into a burning pain, a really extreme burn, like touching a hot flame, not being able to pull back your hand. And the problem is at that stage, you wouldn't see anything on the outside of the skin because the burn reactions, they are inside of the blood vessels. But after a while, they can become damaged and leaky. So the fluids would leak out and later on the blood. And so you have this blood which is leaked into the tissue, gives you this red appearance of all the parts which have been exposed to sunlight. And in this stage, it's so painful, you can't sleep. You can't stand the heat of a person standing nearby. So I pushed away my parents because their body heat was too much. When they tried to comfort me, I couldn't stand it. And this goes on for 
yeah, two to three days in this very extreme state, but you feel the pain sometimes for two weeks and no painkiller would help, nothing. So you just have to retreat to a cool, darkened room and wait until it wears off by itself. So when you think about your childhood, do you remember a lot of being inside? Definitely, yeah. I was um, mostly inside during my childhood. We, of course, we tried to to manage. My parents tried to yeah, somehow design our life around my condition. So we went out in the early morning when there was no sunshine outdoors. And then we tried to stay indoors in a museum or under huge trees in the, in the forest and go back in the afternoon or late evening when the sun was not that hot any longer. But still, I mean, a little bit light is sufficient to cause the problem. So I remember a lot of nights and being in pain and yeah, not well. Mm. So what I do for, if I had to go outside, I... I just walked from one patch of shadow to the next, even running to have that exposure to sunlight minimized as much as possible. Between the time where you were diagnosed and you figured out what this was, before all that, what what was life like? Were you trying to figure all this out and wrap your head around what the issue was? What was it like for you not really understanding what the problem was? The biggest problem was that people didn't believe me that I had issues with light exposure. So there were a lot of allegations of malingering or being overly traumatic when I told them I'm in massive pain. I have to retreat from sunlight. Please let me go inside. And because you couldn't see anything on the skin, this is one of the biggest problems in my condition. The, the alterations of the surface they start with hours to days delay which means the moment you're exposed to sunlight and are in this horrible pain nobody can see anything on your skin and they just don't believe you and so in 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 one way you're you're insulted by the sun and then you're insulted by seeming like this person making it up for some reason it makes you very creative in inventing a lot of excuses why you can't be outdoors. <laughs> I had a lot of homework, <laughs> which in fact was uh, watching Star Wars or reading Lord of the Rings, of course, not studying. <laughs> but this is how you manage. You, At one point, you do not try to explain it to people because they wouldn't believe you anyhow. So you make up excuses. Is there any knowledge as to how many people in the world have this condition? Yeah, it's very rare. So it's um, around one person in 150,000 is affected. So I guess for the US, that would make around uh, 2,000 people. In Connecticut, it's uh, 25 people. <laughs> 25 people in our state. So for the 25 people in Connecticut who may have this condition, I either not know it or suspect they have it or found that Wikipedia article and now they know or they're listening to you and their brains are buzzing. Um, what's what's your advice for these folks? 
the one who have a diagnosis, they have treatment now, which is available in specialized uh, porphyria centers, but only for the adults. That is the big disadvantage. But with that treatment, you can basically have a normal life. What's the treatment like? It's a hormone implant, which is, um, yeah, I said it's, it's implanted under the skin and protects you more or less for two months against the effects of the sunlight. When you say implant under the skin, what do you mean? It means it's a, like a rice grain and uh, there's a, a huge big needle which is uh, stuck under your under the side and, and under the, the fat tissue. And uh, But it's it sounds more horrible than it is. It's really not that painful. <laughs> and uh, so it dissolves within uh, two months. And during that time, it also releases this hormone, which uh, increases the pigmentation of the skin a little bit. So that means that less sunshine is reaching your blood vessels where the reactions happen. And it has a lot of anti-inflammatory properties, which also protect against uh, all the effects that usually develop. And you were involved in the research for this treatment, yeah? So my lab was one of the first testing um, alpha melanotide, it's called the, the treatment, in EPP patients. And uh, I could provide feedback for the design of the clinical trials and for the quality of life measurements. So I could shape a little bit how the research went. And I also did um, safety assays. I designed them and, and tested the samples of the patients, whether they have some adverse reactions for the treatment. And that helped for the, for the approval. So it's really exciting to be involved in your research for your own condition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you spend your whole life not really understanding what's going on. And then all of a sudden, and not being believed <laughs> that you even have it. And then you get to not only be the beneficiary of this treatment, but to be involved in it. I imagine that's pretty empowering. It was it felt like that all the experiences I had in my life suddenly made sense, because I could contribute to the research. And yeah, and I also had the chance to test the treatment myself, even before it was approved. So I was really convinced that there is a huge effect, a huge benefit. Now, I was going to ask, if you could live one day without this condition, what would you do? But it sounds like the treatment allows for that, yeah? Yeah, the, the treatment was really life-changing. And I discovered a lot of things and I never had experienced before. So we went outdoors. We, we even went uh, to the giant redwoods in California. That was a dream since my childhood when I first heard about these wonderful trees. And with the treatment, I dared to go there in summer and see them with my own eyes. This was so amazing. So when did the treatment start? I ask because, you know, I, I hope for you that this treatment lasts and is effective for the rest of your life so you can see whatever you want and you could move around this wild world with uh, as much curiosity and fearlessness as possible. Is, is, is it seeming like this treatment is lasting a while and there aren't really any complications? So we have experience now with the treatment since 15 years. 
I have uh, friends who took the drug since the beginning, since the first clinical trial, and it's working, it's safe, it's effective. So therefore, I don't mind having it the rest of my life as well. Of course, I'm doing research in better options because this is just a symptomatic treatment and a causative treatment, which would cure EPP, basically, would be the better option. And we have ideas for that, so I'm working on this. Uh, currently, this, this is the best option we have. Do you know if this is, is it genetic? Is it something, is it just something that like happens? Sorry, you're allergic to the sun. It's a genetic condition. So it's inherited from both your parents. You need to have one genetic factor. And if you have both of those genetic factors together, then you develop the award disease. But it's uh, still very rare and it has a very interesting mechanism. So the regulation of the gene is affected, not the gene itself. And this also opens new possibility for new treatments. Yeah, it makes me think about CRISPR. Definitely. It's an interesting approach. <laughs> so we already use it in the lab for cell culture studies, but it's not yet ready for use in humans. But I think the future will have some new developments we're going to see. You had mentioned that you talk with other people who have this condition and who are getting treated. What's it like when you talk with each other or if you get together like what's it feel like to be around other people who have this rare condition it's amazing i still remember the first patient i ever met after my diagnosis and it was really wow there is somebody who understands my condition who really understands how i how i live how i have to protect myself my problems my how it feels like the sensations that was so amazing and it still gives me goosebumps when i meet people with the condition so your parents you know must have been really worried about you for such a long time and it's genetic uh, how did they react once you started finding out more information on this and getting a treatment for my parents it must have been a miracle i mean they tried to find out what i have for my whole life and all the physicians, all the doctors, they, at one point, they just think they're overly traumatic and trying to get attention. So they have the same issues like I had when I tried to explain like my symptoms to the physicians. And suddenly there is a name for the condition and not just a boring name, but a long and complicated name, like erythropoietic protoporphyria. It really sounds like something. <laughs> And it also had the advantage that they now could explain to our friends, family, yeah, the explanation for all the symptoms I had during my whole life. So for them, it was a big relief that I finally found the name for my condition and also specialized doctors, peers, all the networks, everything that is so important if you have a rare condition. Well, Yasmin Barman Axison, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> After the break. My heart started racing. My face got red. My hands clenched. And I believe there was vulgarities as well. More of a, shall we say, mental allergy to bad umpires. 
I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This whole show, we've been talking with people who have extreme, painful reactions to common things. Water, sunlight, exercise. And our final guest is no different. Well, she's different, but in the kind of way that makes me want to buy a ticket to a minor league baseball game, order a chili dog and a beer, and be with her as moral support as she experiences a severe allergic reaction to bad umpires. I asked her to tell me her first memory of when she knew something was wrong. Oh, it was bad. And it was at a game that a team I don't even like was playing. And my God, this guy almost got hit in the face with a ball and it was called a strike. Oh. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, we can quibble over, like, the fine points. There was no fine point there. This guy almost got his nose taken off. It was high and inside. And inside? hmm And so how did you react? What happened to your body? My heart started racing. My face got red. My hands clenched and started shaking. And I believe there was vulgarities as well. Oh, wow. And I was about 12. You were 12? So the vulgarities were like not like an adult doing that. It was like a kid. When you have these reactions, do you have like a like a breathing technique or something uh, uh, topical, perhaps? Do you, do you turn to family and friends to cope with the discomfort? I think screaming helps a lot. Screaming advice to the umpire really helps a lot. <laughs> they love that. That actually helps them, right? They learn. To date, not one has listened to me, but, you know, it's about me. It's not about them anyway at that point. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever been kicked out? Not for you. I got an umpire. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so there, there are sports with umpires like baseball, tennis, cricket, and there are sports with referees like um, American football and basketball, ice hockey, boxing. Do you have similar reactions to bad referees or just bad umpires? And what the hell is the difference? I have a specific large reaction to the person behind home plate calling balls and strikes in a baseball game. That's it. Because, like, I watch a lot of soccer. Well, I watch a lot of American football, but I don't know the game that well. So you don't know what to be angry about. Right. So, like, if, if I, if something I don't know is going on, I'm like, hey, I say to the people around me, what was that? And if you're sitting around knowledgeable fans, you get like six different opinions and you're just like, hey, and you buy around and it's all good. Right. And you never learned anything because there is no definitive answer. But but with baseball, I actually understand the game and like know where the strike zone is supposed to be and understand that my eyes are not in the same position as the referees. So it's, it's going to look different for me. Right. I'm in a different position. But come on. Come on. There's no flopping in baseball. And when a guy, like, yanks his head back because he was almost hit, that's something. That's not theater. That's survival. 
right. It's a ball. Now, in, in soccer, that's kind of part of the game. The theater. But not in baseball. We don't do that in baseball. Mm-hmm. So speaking of eyeballs, more sports are replacing human arbiters with digital technology. So what are your thoughts on having calls made by a computer? Do you think maybe this technology could be like an antidote to your allergy? Have you ever read iRobot? I think that's a terrible idea. I love the human component. And what's interesting in baseball is balls and strikes aren't like replayable. Like all sports have rules. This this crowd can be replayed. This one cannot, right? But Major League Baseball does in fact track balls and strikes called by umpires versus how it looks to the camera. But uh, when they replay, like, is the guy in first safe or not? It usually actually shows that the umpire was right. Like, I mean, I think like overwhelming, like maybe 98% of the calls are right. And then the other thing that that does is it's like, oh, damn, I wasn't looking at that from the right angle. And, you know, like if you're a fan, you're sitting there, you're chatting, you're eating snacks, you're having drinks. And I even keep score and I'm doing all this stuff. So like, you know, it is kind of possible. Maybe I missed it, right? Could happen. I guess. I guess. I guess. Seems unlikely. Seems really right. unlikely. <laughs> it's hard for me to believe, but I guess. Yeah, you know, there it could happen there. So it really has exonerated a lot of calls in baseball. But no, I, I want some man or woman standing, and there are women in the minor leagues umpire standing behind Hope Plate making calls. So I have something to yell at. It's part of the game, you know? Now, I feel bad asking you to do this because I didn't ask any of my other guests to demonstrate their allergic reactions because, you know, that would be uh, cruel and masochistic. And I'm just some radio lady in Connecticut. But if you are in a position mentally and physically where you can perhaps demonstrate uh, what happens when you're at your beloved Brewers game and that pitch almost... Joe West. Joe West just called a strike and it was a ball. Did I have to keep it like appropriate for radio? No, no, no. This is pre-taped. I can bleep you. (laughs) I just want you to center yourself, Patricia. And and I want to hear, I want to feel what it's like to be near you when you experience this allergy to bad umpiring. Well, I'll... Pretend that there's kids around me because I don't generally like crazy around kids. For the love of Mike, what that is wrong with your head? Let me throw my glasses at you so you can see better. Kind of like that. Any any other sayings that you particularly like to scream and and get off your chest? Um, well, I've been known to sing the Three Blind Mice song. You know, and and seriously, like waving your glasses. And saying, can I throw these at you? That's kind of a thing, too. Yeah, that goes right to the heart. I've never thrown mine at anybody. Because <laughs> I can't, you know? There's a net now. There's no way you could even get it there. But uh, they could learn from me. I'm a teacher. They could learn from me. But so far, they haven't chosen to do so. But, you know, it could happen. I haven't had too many opportunities in my life to feel righteous anger. Only maybe three times that I can think of in my in my 41 years on planet Earth have I felt like I had every right to be furious. And it felt complicated. On the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm suffering 
and that doesn't feel good. But on the other hand, whoo, it feels good to know that you're right in your anger and fury and to get it off your chest. And so I wonder when you do get this off your chest and you experience this allergic reaction to bad umpiring, like, does it make you feel better or does it make you feel worse? You know, in terms of righteous anger, I live right by the third precinct in Minneapolis. That's righteous anger. Yelling at an umpire is part of the game. You get your peanuts, you get your beer. If you're me, you get a hot dog. uh, And you sit down and you yell at the umpire. Righteous anger is for racism. Righteous anger is for things that are truly unjust. Being mad at an umpire isn't really righteous. It's just part of the game. An important distinction. Patricia Rydine, thank you so much for talking with me. You are so welcome. If any of these symptoms and coping mechanisms that you've heard throughout the show sound familiar to you, find your community. Click through to the webpage for today's show at ctpublic.org audacious to connect with other folks who know what it's like and maybe have found ways to cope that work. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns, Abi Levine, and Dylan Reyes at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like profiles of people who have an ultra-rare condition where they're able to remember almost every day of their lives as if it were yesterday, how a woman communicated her way out of locked-in syndrome using blinking, and what are the best parts of being very, very beautiful, and what sucks about it hear conversations with models about beauty. You can hear them wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.